You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each week as we give you another story of some of America's heroes. Before we get to this week's story, I want to remind you guys, check out our website, hazardground.com. Also, Check us out on all of our social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are on all of them, as uh, we have told you in recent weeks. We are on Spotify now, so you can get us there. Of course, iTunes, Stitcher Play, Google Play, whatever format you guys are listening to us on. Again, we appreciate it. Also, leave us a rating and review if you can get on iTunes or however you're listening to it. That helps grow the podcast. That's super important to us. We want to get this thing as big as possible and get that Hazard Ground community growing out there so we can get more and more people listened in to what we have going on each week. This week, a special episode as we have two guests on the Hazard Ground podcast. Both of these gentlemen were members of the special operations community in the Army. Our first guest is a retired Master Sergeant. He had a total of eight deployments, including Mogadishu, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He spent 20 years in the military in the special operations community. And due to the nature of his assignment in the military and the jobs that he's held, he's asked that we withhold his last name and we'll just call him Brad. Our second guest got out of the military as an E-7 Sergeant First Class in the special operations community. And as notable as his military career was, including deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, you may know him from his previous career prior to the military as a guitarist in the band Nirvana and Soundgarden. He is Jason Everman. Brad, Jason, thank you guys so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having us, Mark. All right, so let's start with Brad, uh, because your career goes back a little bit earlier. Uh, as I mentioned, you were part of Mogadishu, so you got in the, into the Army way in the early 90s. Tell us how your career got started in the military. Yeah, so kind of a kind of an interesting story, but I had a friend who joined the Air Force kind of out of the blue, and we didn't see him for about a year, and he came back, and he was telling us how cool the Air Force was, and... I decided, you know, the music thing wasn't working out and maybe I should look at something else. And I had this big interest in special operations, reading about Rangers in Vietnam and SOG and, and different things like that. And, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to the recruiter and see what I can do. So I walked in and saw the Air Force recruiter because he was the same guy that had enlisted my friend. And uh, the Army guy kind of pulled me aside when I was leaving for the day. And he said, hey, what do you what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be in Delta Force. And he says, whoa, you can't do that. You got to do something first, like be in special forces. And I said, OK, well, I'll do that. And he said, well, you can't do that either. You got to be in something before that, like the Rangers. And I said, OK, well, I'll do that. And he said, well, I can get you a contract for that. So that that's kind of what got the process started and uh, ultimately ended up with a Ranger contract. So. That was that was my enlistment story. At the time, though, you know, this was uh, 1990 and the military had these huge drawbacks and, right. uh, and drawdowns. So, you know, it was don't tell them that you've used illicit drugs. If you got any driving, you know, alcohol related driving offense, they won't take you. And they, they literally had me waver. Uh, my milk allergy as a little kid. They were not going to take me because I was allergic to milk when I was a little kid. That's crazy so, because anyway. you know, nowadays they'll take anybody if you got a, if you got a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can put a certain put a sentence together. You're good. <laughs> yeah. So, but let me ask you, as far as the idea of going to Delta, which you know we've had a couple of guys who have been in that organization on the podcast. That's an extremely lofty goal, and it's one that's not often talked about. It, it was, it's never on the commercials. So clearly, again, you, you talked about researching it. What led you to look for that? Well, I, I was a complete military idiot in terms of nobody in my family served. I had no real understanding of what it was going to be like. Um, but kind of like everything that I do, I put my everything into being the best that I can be. So if I'm a fry cook, I'm going to be the best fry cook that you know McDonald's has ever hired. If I uh, and playing music, I'm going to do the best that I can with that. And that's, that's always kind of been my thing. So I set my sights as high as I could possibly set them and, you know, work towards that goal over a long period of time. 
So you get into the military on a ranger contract. When is this and how long does it take for you before you get through special forces assessment selection and then eventually move on to Delta? So um, I never I never was in uh, special forces. I did go to the Q course and change my MOS from 11 series to 18 series. Okay. But the basic, the basic answer to your question is I had a ranger contract. I signed up in May of 90 and uh, over the summer, I, I couldn't enter the military until November of 90 because they had this delayed enlistment. And um, over the summer was when desert shield kicked off right. and they literally opened the floodgates and let everybody in. So I came in in 90 in November and when I got uh, into basic training, just finished graduated in basic training and was about to start AIT and the commander for the basic training group, you know, whatever it was, a battalion or a regiment, I don't know, whatever size it was, got everybody out on the parade field one afternoon and said, you're all going to be changed and mechanized. Everybody is going to be heading over to Saudi, riding in the back of a Bradley. And I thought, holy fuck, this isn't what I signed up to be. You know, how do I get out of this? Because that's not what I want to do. And uh, it, it took about a day or so for our uh, drill sergeants and everybody to come back through and say, hey, he's misspeaking. Uh, anybody that has a Ranger contract is going to continue to airborne school and then, uh, you know, Ranger indoctrination program. And then, you know, from there, it's all on you. But initially, I was told, you know, you're going to be changed and mechanized. And, and in fact, the entire uh, basic training battalion regiment, whatever it was, all the students that were in at that time got switched and mechanized. Wow. So it's, it's fortuitous that you managed to avoid that. Uh, when do you get to complete all of your training and get to your first actual assignment? So uh, I went to airborne school. It must have been February, March of 91. And then the Ranger indoctrination program in April of 91, and which was three weeks at the time and got, got there in, uh, I think it was April 28th of 91. It was assigned to B company, third Ranger battalion. Then you get to your first deployment, uh, in Mogadishu in Somalia. What was that like? Um, what was your mission when you got there and you know, what did you see? Give me all the background on it. Um, not to not to spend a ton of time in it because that's sure. probably a, a whole podcast right. in itself. <laughs> um, you know, like a, a book could probably cover all my experiences with that. Um, you know, first of all, just being in the ring, you know, my, my first people ask me, and I'm I'm kind of off track here, but people ask me all the time, like, why did you go to you know the highest place that you could go and wow, you got there so quickly, but what people don't realize is that it's a series of very small steps that you're taking. So, you know, when I was in airborne school, my goal was to complete airborne school. When I got to the Ranger indoctrination program, my goal was to complete that. When I got to the Rangers, my goal was to get to Ranger school because then all these uh, spec fours would leave me alone and I wouldn't get uh, smoked running up and down the hallways in the middle of the night. Um, so, Anyway, it was it was a few years. I had been there for a few years. Had been to the Ranger Ranger course and graduated that, and and was a team leader. And then that's when uh, we went on a JRX in Texas that ultimately led to to us getting on a plane and going to Fort Bragg and doing a train up for a couple of weeks, and then and then heading over to Mogadishu. We had had several people uh, from you know Operation Gothic Serpent, the battle in Mogadishu on the podcast to include Matt Eversman and Mike Durant and a, a couple of others. And when you look back on that experience, uh, for all the story that's been told repeatedly, you know, you're several over 20 years now away from it. What's it like to look back on that and what stays with you about it? Um, yeah, I, I think it was, it was a different time in the military. We weren't at war. And if, if anything, you know, we really kind of underestimated I think what we were up against and didn't know the the kind of full scope of of what was there. And we had very limited resources. We didn't have the things that we were used to having uh, in training, Spectre gunships or, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, there's there's so much to cover with that. Um, you know, 
the the acts of heroism that I saw and and the sights and sounds are, are just things that you know that never go away. But you know, it's amazing to me that of the number of guys on the ground, the amount of damage that was inflicted on the enemy is just overwhelming. You know, and if you think about the number of guys that were killed in action, minus you know the number of guys that were on the ground, minus the number of guys that were hurt. Minus the number of guys like Matt Eversman who didn't make it back into the city for multiple trips, you know there there were very few people that were inflicting all that damage. Yeah, it's 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 quite heroic, and uh, every time I hear a new wrinkle to that particular battle, I'm never surprised because it just, as you said, you could spend hours and hours and hours dissecting that from everybody's different point of view, and what everybody leaves there with is uh, is unique to their own experience, and I think that's something worthwhile worthwhile speaking was- about. It was also a different time in that we didn't have situal, situational awareness like we have nowadays yeah, or like the guys have nowadays. So in that regard, just communicating, like not everybody had a radio. Not everybody knew what was going on. Um, you know, when I, when I started engaging combatants, we're, we weren't even at the target building yet. So I didn't even know that. And, and, and there was no plan. There was no hey, we're going into a bad area like what's depicted in the movie. There was none of that. It was, we're going to go out here, set up a blocking position. This is what we're going to do. And, you know, we're going to grab these dudes and then exfil. And uh, anyway, so it took us months uh, individually once we came back. And um, it took us months to piece together all of the things that happened that day just by talking. Where were you when this? Where were you when that? Um you know, collectively kind of all coming together and, and figuring things out. So that, that wasn't something that like we all knew what was happening as it was happening. Uh, As another example of that, we got back to the hangar. Finally, I think about noon the next day after, after going to the stadium and kind of cross loading wounded and getting guys uh, medevaced out and things like that. We got back to the hangar and CNN was on the TV and that's when Mike Durant's, picture and face and video popped up on the news and we started seeing guys, you know, being dragged around the city. That was our first, uh, that was the first time that we were aware that that had even happened. We didn't even know. Wow. That's just a, I I can only imagine uh, because for those of us who have been, as you later on went to Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, all those news flashes were readily available like on a daily basis. So it, it was something that you're always in tune with. Um, and, and in fact, that I think to a certain extent, it affected a lot of the decisions that were made. It affected a lot of the way we fought battles because we knew we had cameras on us and eyes on us at all times. And uh, that's a dangerous, slippery slope you put soldiers in combat on uh, to ask them to, to conform to a standard of normalcy that war doesn't provide. So uh, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to see when you first get back to that hangar, I assume. Yeah, it was just, it was more of a surprise, you know, and, and again, it's like there were guys that we accounted for, um, we didn't even know who was unaccounted for at that point. So, you know, to find out that, hey, here's a helicopter pilot who is now being held captive, you know, we, it was literally news to us and we're watching it on CNN before we had even been informed through the chain of command or anybody even being able to piece that together. Crazy, crazy stuff. All right, let me put you on pause here. Brad, I, I do want to switch over to Jason and, and begin to get his story, and then kind of we'll reconvene on the, in the wars on terror where you both served here. Uh, but if the name Jason Everman rings a bell to anybody listening out there, he was the former bassist for Nirvana uh, and also a member of Soundgarden as well as other bands. And, you know, we always ask people how they get started in the military, Jason, but I, I kind of got to ask a question before that. How did you get in the band and how did you get in Nirvana? The band thing was just something I did since I was a teenager, uh, playing in punk bands, and it, you know it progressed to uh, more and more successful bands with without any, you know any plan. Like making a living uh, playing rock and roll was uh, kind of a foreign concept, so it, it wasn't planned at all. It just kind of happened. And so. When you are living that life and doing everything else, what's the decision to walk away from that and decide to enlist into the military? Mm, it took it took about a year for me to, from when I kind of got the, the first kernel of uh, 
the idea to do it to when I actually executed. So it, it was it was a pretty deliberate process. But um, I guess basically uh, being a professional rock musician wasn't um, it just wasn't satisfying anymore. Um, it felt more like a job. It wasn't uh, didn't bring me joy. Uh, I guess is the best way to say it. And when you enlisted, it was 1994. I mean, listen, you know, Desert Storm is in the rearview mirror. We had clearly won that. There was no, like, hangover from it or anything like that. And 9-11 hasn't happened yet, so it was an odd time uh, to sign up for the military. I mean, I remember, you know, I was beginning college a couple of years after that, and the idea of doing ROTC looked, like, foreign to people because it's like, well, there are regular jobs out there. Why are you joining up for the military? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a... The idea of, of getting a new vocation, it was uh, is definitely a, in the line of like a personal challenge and personal development. I mean, Somalia wasn't that uh, far back. In fact, yeah. most of my RIP cadre were uh, Somalia vets, and that, it was a pretty fresh experience for them all. But um, yeah, if, if you were to ask me uh, September 10th, 2001, uh, that I'd be going to war, I, w- I probably would have laughed. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Did you know that you wanted to be a ranger, or was that something that just you stumbled upon? How did that come about? Uh, I guess uh, similar, similar to Brad. So uh, during this kind of decision process of, like, leaving music and going into the military, uh, I read every, uh, at least somewhat con- contemporary uh, war book I could get my hands on, and, and they're basically all Vietnam books. Because a lot of the Vietnam guys at that point had started started to write books, um, so the special operations definitely intrigued me. SF SEALs, Rangers, um, all that. So all these books I was consuming were, were, were uh, Vietnam era, you know, soft guys, but you know, still, you know, the missions were sexy. It's a high adventure, or whatever. Um, Going through the enlistment process, uh, the only recruiters who could kind of guarantee me a, a shot at a special operations unit was the Army uh, with a Ranger contract, similar to Brad. You know, one more question about you uh, signing up. You, you were, I think, 27 at the time when you were enlisted. Did you think that yeah, you... I, was, I was 25. 25? Okay, I was going to say, yeah. did you did you feel like you were too old? Mm. No, especially in, in retrospect, um, 25, I, you know, I was still a kid in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, when I, when I got to, uh, a battalion, I mean, there was, there was dudes in my, uh, platoon who were, you know, peers age-wise so you know it wasn't that wasn't that freakish when you got into the military you know everyone's got a story of a past life and how they ended up there and everybody's is different did anybody recognize you from your previous career um i definitely kept it under wraps but sure i mean you know people found out yeah i mean was that sometimes that could be a source of stress for people. Like they want to take it out on you for living a, I guess what they would deem a special life or a different life. I mean, was that any, any sort of issue for you that people found out? Uh, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think anyone uh, approached the idea with malice. Um, it was definitely a novelty. And uh, I think especially before I went to ranger school, um, you know, it's was, it was fun to fuck with the guy, you know, who used to be in the rock bands. So, right. <laughs> you know, that was probably a thing. Was there anything from your time in the bands, Nirvana, Soundgarden, whatever, that an experience that you draw off of when going through Ranger Indoctrination Program, Ranger School, whatever it may be? I mean, I, it's not exact. I just, I asked that only because some people's previous career helps them in the military. So I don't know if it did for you. Um. No, probably not at all. But uh, <laughs> before I was a professional musician, I was a commercial fisherman in Alaska, and that was challenging. So that that maybe gave me some of the, you know, wherewithal to get through, uh, you know, RIP or SFAS or whatever. So where are you on 9-11? Where are you stationed? What are you doing? What do you recall about that day? 
Uh, I was in, at Fort Bragg in the Q course, um, first day of language school. Oh, wow. And I, I had just flown back from New York City the day before. And I was actually in at the World Trade Center at the bar on top of the world. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> and so what was it like watching it on TV? Or you didn't see it on TV because you guys were in, in class? No, it's like uh, I was at the, the SOAS, the Bragg, uh, before class started with, I, I can't remember now, 09 or whatever. Um, kind of in the lobby and or like the, the student, uh, what do you call it, like student union area or whatever. Um, and there's CNN's on, and uh, everyone's watching it on CNN. And you know, right then I knew uh, things were going to change. Yeah, and everybody I've, I've talked to on the podcast who is you know in school or already in a ranger unit, you know, that happened, and it's almost I don't want to say excitement, but everybody knows, hey, this is what we signed up for, right? This is our call up to the big leagues, and so you knew that at that point in time. Uh, you have to finish the Q course though, and everything to 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 get to that point. So when does that happen? Uh, so it was like six months of language school, and then God, how do they do it now? I guess you did Sear after language school. I can't remember. Yeah, the, the, the series, but yeah. So language school then Sear, and so for so the whatever, whatever that is, like seven months. Right, and for those listening who don't know, Sear is. Uh, just a basically survival of aid, resistance and escape type uh, class, you know, in case you uh, are ever captured by the enemy and or forced to save. The, I mean, it's just it's a just a training course that that special ops guys go to. Um, how quickly do you end up getting to deploy? So it actually t- it took a little bit of a while. So uh, did a couple um, J sets, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, my first operational deployment was going to uh, Kuwait for the buildup for the Iraq invasion in 2002. Gotcha. So we, we, we deployed 2002 and it was kind of a six month build up, train up, whatever. And then uh, obviously, you know, three across the berm. Did you have that kind of excited feeling that, you know, Hey, this was going down and we're getting called up to do what we were trained to do. Yeah, definitely. And I only ask that again because there are people like Brad out there who have already been through combat, right? And you know that it's hell and back and it's a whole different scenario. Uh, and so some people, you know, what's the old adage that you can get any man to go into combat once, it's getting him to go back. That's extremely difficult. Uh, and, and so for you, Brad, uh, when 9-11 happens, where are you and how quickly do you end up uh, in the Middle East? So, uh, yeah, I was I was at the unit. Uh, during 9-11 and was actually at home on September 11th um, because I was supposed to leave the next day to go help run our selection course where we go run it mm-hmm. and was watching uh, the Today Show, drinking some coffee, getting my stuff packed and, uh, you know, the news changed to, hey, there's a big smoking hole in the side of the World Trade Center. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's no accident. And and then watched, you know, the next plane hit live. And at that moment, I knew that my life was changing in some way. And it was just a matter of there were so many unknowns. It it was more like, man, I don't know how long we're going to go, where we're going to go, how soon we're going to go, how long this is going to last. I definitely wouldn't have predicted that. You know, 17 years later, we would still be engaged <laughs> in, in engaging folks. That was something that never, you know, crossed my mind. But, uh, yeah, definitely, I, I knew that things were changing, and it was a matter of, uh, and I knew that, that my unit would be called upon first to go do something. Um, and it just was a matter of figuring out how, how soon and, and where. So you get to Afghanistan first, I assume? Yeah, and and my squadron wasn't the one that that deployed to Afghanistan first, so I didn't end up there until uh, April of two thousand two. Through your first deployment, when you guys get back, how quickly do you end up in Iraq? Because that's your next round, right? Yeah, that was so immediately after uh, getting back from Afghanistan, we basically started prepping as the the spearhead into Iraq. And that started almost immediately and until 
we flew over to stage right before everything kicked off. Um, you know, that, that's, that's all our, all our, all of our focus. Let's circle back to, uh, I guess, kind of the overarching points of your careers. You go through multiple deployments and you're, and you're living in this, this special operations world. Do you get tired of the environment and, and ultimately does it wear down on you because the, the op tempo is so high and the nature of the missions is dangerous and things of that nature? Is that ultimately what leads you to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to hang them up? Let me circle back on something even before that, you know, and I'll, I'll say, because basically what we're doing here is trying to kind of draw together how we ultimately ended up to where we are today, right? Yeah. There are, there are a ton of creative people in special operations and something that kind of, it took me by surprise when I got there, but once I got there and I understood the nature of special operations, it, it takes creative people. It takes guys that can figure out ways of going against the enemy in unconventional ways. And so there were there, this huge number of artists and guys that could draw and not as many musicians, but being a musician myself, um, I knew about Jason as, about as soon as Jason stepped foot in a, in, a, in a ranger battalion that was across the country because everybody knew I was a guitar player and they're like, hey, there's this guy. And he's here and went to ranger school with one of his uh, one of his uh, probably team leaders or a team leader that was in his company. So I, I ended up finding out about him, you know, long ago, probably probably 94, 95. Oh, really? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so we've we've lived we've lived a parallel life, you know, in a lot of ways for a long time. And it wasn't until, I guess, about five years ago when we finally met and uh and hung out so what ultimately leads though to the decision for for you to leave the military brad so for me it was retirement okay and that that was something where you know i did 20 years um i wanted to because i could retire i i joined a little bit later too i joined it at 20 21 and so i wanted to kind of start the next phase of life um, and do something different and challenge myself in different ways. And, you know, a lot of guys that get to the unit, uh, and, and me included, when I got there, I thought, I'm never going to leave this place. It's like being in Disneyland. And the resources are incredible. The training is incredible. Um, the mission is incredible. And and it's all very noble and and loved it. But after, I guess, about five years there, I started struggling with just, you know, the challenges of the monotony of, the same things over and over again. And, you know, so after, after I was operational for a number of years, I ended up taking a, a position in research and development and kind of got in my, my feet into that a little bit. And, and ultimately just wanted to, to do something new and challenge myself in a different way. And, and that's, that was ultimately why I decided to get out. I didn't want to be 60, you know, with 30 years in the military or, 35 years in and talking to the old crusty sergeant major, you know, that that's just not my shtick. So at, uh, you know, at 40 or 41, then it was time for me to, to pull out and, and go, go a different, a different direction. Jason, what about you? What ultimately led to the end of your career? Um, I guess maybe along a similar, similar lines as, as the music thing. Um, I think it was, time to uh move on to the next phase i guess um i was still you know a relatively young guy at the time um you know i had some gunfights under my belt um and nothing on on the level of, of brad and somalia but uh you know had had some good moments so check that block um, so I basically applied to a couple of colleges and I uh, got accepted to a pretty good school. And so I decided to get out and go to school. And so with that career change, how do you end up linking back up with, with Brad as far as the band is concerned? I mean, cause you know, school kind of is time consuming. Um, so well, I, I finished, finished my undergrad, I think uh, probably uh, pretty close to the same time I met Brad um maybe a year off I, I can't remember for sure um and so I was doing other stuff I mean it just worked out 
And uh, we're both in New York, which helped. Sure. By the way, Jason, I, I read that uh, General McChrystal wrote your letter of recommendation for your application for college. Uh, correct. <laughs> Did you ask him that personally? That's a pretty cool, pretty guy, pretty good guy to know. Yeah, and uh, you know, I wouldn't say we're, we're buddies, but uh, <laughs> I served under him as uh, both my battalion commander and regimental commander, and um, saw him in the jock at Bagram, and uh, asked him if he brought me a letter of recommendation. He said, "Yep." That's pretty awesome. That's pretty pretty good stuff. So uh, he was he was a really solid guy. So I I ran across him when he was the regimental commander. Okay. And I was in the the reconnaissance detachment in the Rangers. And when I left the regiment, you know, of course I had served about eight years in the Ranger regiment, four in B Company, Third Ranger Battalion, and then about just about four years in the in the reconnaissance detachment. And uh, wrote him a nice email, you know, thanking him for allowing me to serve in the Rangers and how much I love the community and, and what it meant to me. And he sent me a a huge long reply that was definitely not something that he cut and paste or copied and paste from something else. And, uh, and just what a thoughtful, you know, meaningful email that was to me. I wish I had printed it, but it was on the uh, secret computer. I'm not sure which one of you guys want to uh, handle this question, but how does Silence and Light, the band that you're both currently in, become born? Well, I'll I'll start that. Um, you know, for for the last number of years, um, you know, my wife and I we go out on every Friday night. It's kind of like date night, and you know, we'll have some cocktails and then we'll go get dinner, and it's it's all super local to where to where we live, and you know, for, for the better part of, I guess, three years, I've been searching for a way, you know, that I can contribute and give back to the community that I came from. And it's almost like I would describe to her, like, I feel like I'm a ship out on the ocean. It's dark. And I'm just looking for the, I'm just looking for the light. Just show me where to go. Show me what to do. I want to continue to give back uh, to the community. And, you know, one week we'd be out and having some drinks and she would say, you know, maybe I should run for office of some sort, or, you know, every week it was almost like a different thing and and trying to figure out. And one day she came into, I have one of the rooms in my house, which is basically just all set up music equipment and everything else. And, And she said, it's just a shame that you aren't doing something with this. You've got all this great stuff. And you really should, you know, do something with this. And the next morning I'm driving to work and I thought, that's it. Like, this is something that I can do. That's creative. It allows me to express emotion and all these like bottled up nasty things in a creative way that's healthy. And I can take the proceeds from that and give that directly to the community that I came from. So like win, win situation. No, it's perfect. I mean, it makes perfect sense, obviously. And, you know, in the same vein, I guess it's kind of still why we have this podcast is just to try to give back and communicate and, you know, tell the stories that people haven't heard. So how does Jason come into the fold here? So uh, within literally what, what makes the timing on this even better was I think within a week he was he was uh, visiting and we were going to see a concert together. And we were having some cocktails before the show and I brought the whole venture up to him and said, you know, I totally respect if you want to stay away from this. I don't know if it's something that you want to get back into, but I can't think of anybody that I'd rather start this journey with and and go down this road than you. And, you know, for a number of reasons, but to be able to create music with a brother especially people from similar backgrounds and similar life experiences and combat experiences um, you know, just, just a perfect fit and personally and, and everything else. And, uh, and so I mentioned it to him and it's kind of just grown organically from there where I started a social media page and, you know, the next guy was a guy that hit me up, a former MARSOC officer, uh, Tyson, who's our bass player. And he hit me up and said, Hey, I love what you're doing. I love the message. How can I be involved? You know, I used to play. This is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it's just kind of grown from there. 
and uh, I think it's I think it's just really it's really cool to me kind of organically come together. Sure. Hey, Jason, uh, when he asked you, what was your reaction? And, and had you even played before? Just did you put the guitar down and not pick it up and that part of your life was over? I mean, how did you feel about it? Uh, no, I've always um, at least uh, done what I call maintenance pretty much the whole time. I think initially um, when I walked away from being a professional musician, I, I didn't play that much, maybe for a couple of years. Um, and maybe still had a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth or whatever, but, uh, it came back around to it cause I, I do love, I, I, I love the, the medium. Um, I, I, you know, I just earlier today, I was in my garage and I love plugging into a tube tube amplifier and, uh, getting as loud as my neighbors will allow and, <laughs> and playing. It's, it's definitely still has the same effect that it did when I was 15. Um, but as far as like doing it. Uh, I guess I guess I'm in a better place now, um, just because I'm over a lot of uh, the the BS. It kind of goes along with that world, and I'm kind of came back full circle to when I was a teenager, and I, you know, would do it for the pure joy of it, and that's all. Do you think that if you hadn't gone to combat and went through the experiences, that you'd still be bitter about the way things ended in your first go around as a professional musician? No, because I, I wasn't. I wasn't even that bitter about it. It's okay. just kind of like, oh, time to move on to the next phase. And, uh, you know, that's what I did. So you're, you're, you're playing with Brad. He asked you to join this this venture that he has going on. I assume you welcomed it with open, open arms, no hesitation? Uh, yeah, I, I had no reservations about it. I think, uh, I guess, thinking in practical terms is just, okay, we have to sort out logistics, you know? Sure. And, and what were some of the logistical issues you were dealing with? Uh, time, like, uh, that's my biggest commodity, uh, as I'm fully ensconced in middle age now, it's like money's not an issue. Time is, um, and I, I remember not, didn't seem like that long ago when that was not the case. In fact, the inverse was the case, but, um, yeah, uh, time and then, uh, geography, you know? Well, you gave me a little shot of hope. spatial temporal problem. Right. <laughs> you gave me a small ray of hope that, you know, eventually money won't be a problem because I haven't fully hit middle age yet, but I'm, I'm approaching that. So now I at least have a small ray of hope that uh, I can live that way. But so where is Silence and Light right now and, and kind of what's the, the goal of it? I know it's obviously helping vets, but I mean, you're trying to put out albums or you're trying to play live shows. What are we doing here? So in a, in a perfect world, you know, this thing would become a, a fully functioning, you know, real time band, just like just like anything else that's out there. There's there's that side of it, but there's the re you know the realistic side of it too, which is right now we're making an album. Um, we're recording in the collaborative portion of that, so basically, I'm I'm sending guitar tracks and things like that to these guys to check out, and uh, this weekend we'll be all together in North Carolina to start piecing some of that together and, and getting it tightened up. All of that's like a pre-production before we go into a, a real studio in LA in uh, June and July. So yeah, there, there are logistical issues, but that's something that with nowadays technology and file sharing and, you know, that stuff, we can be further along than what, you know, would have been the case, you know, even 10, 15 years ago completely different nowadays. Brad, I didn't ask you, uh, what is your actual role in the band? What instrument do you play? Are you vocals or what? So, uh, play guitar and, and some vocals and I'm by no means a singer, but there, there are certain parts that I can pull off and certain parts that I can't. And there's another full-time vocalist that'll be covering 90% of that. But yeah, so, so playing uh, guitar, uh, full-time is, is my main thing. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, this album gets made, guys, and, you know, how does it benefit the veterans community? I mean, are we just taking proceeds of sales or what? So, yeah, um, you know, this will post to iTunes and Spotify and Apple Music and all the places that that anybody would normally purchase music. Uh, a lot of people don't purchase music nowadays, and as soon as a song is released, you know, it shows up on YouTube and kids listen to it for free without paying for it. Uh, one of the goals we're hoping with here is that people will actually make the attempt to pay for it so that, you know, 
this uh, 99 cents purchase on a song or 9.99 for an album goes back to uh, the community to a number of different charities. So each of the band members are representing a different charitable organization. And uh, my portion of the proceeds would go to Warrior's Heart. And uh, that's something that a buddy of mine is is a co-founder on. And, and it's a physical, tangible place. It helps veterans deal with all sorts of issues, uh, not just veterans, but it could be a SWAT guy. It could be EMS people. Uh, but anybody that's that's struggling and needs help, and it deals with uh, with some of the issues of PTSD in a in a whole. Meaning, a lot of guys have or gals have substance abuse issues, and they, they go through years of that before they kind of realize that they can't numb themselves with with booze or drugs. And uh, it kind of starts there and helps get people clean, and then also starts uh, treatment. So. It's something that I believe very strongly in. And uh, so that's that's where the portion of proceeds that we would, would earn, at least on my behalf, would go. Jason, what about your organization? Um, that's still uh, to be decided right now. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a, a veterans, uh, you know, some type of veterans advocacy uh, organization. Do you guys go out and meet with vets a lot? I mean, do you have time for that, as you mentioned, Jason? Or is that something you guys would want to do as as a band or the other members of the band, military as well? Or Yeah, so every everybody has uh, has had a role within the military in okay. some way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, that's something that kind of we felt to be able to speak to people, especially veterans, to say, you know, look, we've been there and done that, been through the dark days, and... Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're here healthy on the other side, um, you know, and helping giving back. And ultimately, it's like this purpose thing, right, that that's what I believe people lose when they separate from whatever job they're doing that has that importance in their life. And so, you know, this is this is one of the things that helps give me purpose. It's it's like therapeutic for me. And, uh, you know, that's that's one of the things I'm trying to kind of lead by example and show people. Hey, you can go after your dreams. You got to go for it, though. You can't, you know, you can't pussyfoot around. You got to go all in, and and that, you know, you can you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it too. Because no doubt, I've lived dark times. So, what's tougher, uh, guys, being in a band or being in the military? <laughs> Probably the drama of a band, not not ours. Thing. <laughs> I was going to say, Jason, what about you? What's tougher for you? <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess it would depend on what kind of tough you're talking about. As far as this kind of like a, a, being a, a pain at times, uh, you know, being in a band, it's being in a band is basically like being in a, a four way or a five way marriage. And, uh, it can get complicated at times. Uh, honestly, the military, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's physically challenging and, and at times can be dangerous, but you know, it's pretty cut and dry what's going on and um you, you just got to do your best you can you can also count on the military people that's one of the things that you know in dangerous situations a lot of the times what gave me comfort was just knowing the guys that were on my left and right and i would follow those guys anywhere was i scared to death yes but you know with those guys i felt invincible well, and, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to yeah. ask you, like, as far as the bonds from the military and bonds from band members, are they the same? Are they similar, or not even close? I think you probably go through, and, and Jason can answer this a little bit better because he lived, you know, on the road and and traveling in a van and things like that, which which I never certainly did. But you know, I I think I'll put it more like this. I think one of the things that we're doing that's different, and the music that we're creating, and the way we're creating it, and the people we're creating it with. It's we can be brutally honest and ultimately we just want what's best for the song or what's best for the album. Um, you know, there's no ego thing where in, in band situations, you generally find a lot of that and uh, a lot of uh, partnering up of these two guys don't like this and they don't like the way this is being played and, and that kind of drama that happens. Um, you know, but that's something that I think we're actually using to our benefit is the fact that we can be open and honest with one another and say, Hey man, that sucks. I don't like that. You know, let's change it. Or, you know, we need to do something more like this. 
and and nobody's you know super married to it right now i mean i feel like you know from what you guys tell me that your relationship as band members is forged based off of your relationship in the military yeah i mean there's a there's a trust that's there and i know that i can count on these guys to to back me up and like i said ultimately it's about you know creating something and doing something to give back to the community so uh, you know, there's nobody I would rather do that with than, than guys that I know that have experienced similar situations. And, and I think ultimately too, it'll be something that's reflected in the music. Like this isn't happy go lucky stuff. It's also not, you know, talking about dropping bombs on people and killing and things like that. But, you know, it's, it's meant to talk about the realities of, of whatever that is, you know, and so where can people find out about the band? I mean, is there a website? Can they, you know, purchase music already made or where are we with all this? So right now, again, it's like we're in the collaborative process. So, you know, kicking everything around, we're, we're going to start to pull that together in the next couple of months. And and kind of the big news that I'll I'll be announcing on my social media, which is ultimately in the next couple of months going to switch over to the band's social media, is that we've got a, uh, a producer who is uh, who is top notch um, within the music industry producer involved in the project? So his name's Josh Goodwin, G U D W I N, and he's produced everybody from Maroon Five to uh, Britney Spears to Justin Bieber. You know, so this is this is a legitimate huge opportunity, and you know we're not we're not taking it lightly. Um, my social media is, um, on, on Instagram right now. So anything that's going on and kind of releasing news as this whole thing is building is, uh, on Instagram, it's the letter J Bradford underscore official. And, and it's got some cool pictures, uh, action shots. It's got shots of all of us in our prior lives, whether that's music or military, and then, you know, kind of combine that also with, with stuff that's happening now and today. Final question on the band. How'd you come up with the name? Oh, man. So uh, it, it started with uh, Tyson and I, the bass player. It started with he and I kicking around this idea of, of kind of the solace and, and solitude and loneliness, really, um, that comes from deploying, you know. And, and people yeah. think that it's all action all the time. It's not. And, you know, being away from loved ones or family or anything else. And then and then also having this like hope and positivity. And so he sent me a, a poem, I believe that it was. It was it was basically titled Silence and Light. And and that's kind of where it started. And a picture that he had taken in Iraq that was uh, this beautiful kind of landscape sunrise photo. And when we both just said, yep, that, that's it. That's what it's going to be. Wow. That's, that's just incredible. I mean, there's a lot there too. Um, you know, you talk, when you, as you were talking about a deployment, I almost liken it to like, uh, in a sense, maybe, you know, a football game, like a play lasts only two or three seconds, but the game, you know, is three and a half hours long. And there's a lot more downtime in the game than there is actual action when you think about it. Um, and it all adds up, but that certainly is, uh, pretty salient about, about a deployment. Um, and, and just a final thought from both of you guys on anything you want to add on your military career or the band or anything else. Um, ultimately, you know, again, I'll just keep repeating the same thing. You know, this is, this is really, it's not about me. It's not about Jason or any of the other members. It's, it's bigger than that. And it's about giving back and doing something positive and creative, you know, with anything that you have in your life that that's causing you to stress or anything else. And, it sounds it sounds silly. I mentioned this on another interview that I did. Somebody's worst day in their life might be that they lose one of their pets, and and people laugh at that, you know, in terms of, oh, I faced combat or I faced this or these deaths or all of that. But but re really, any, anybody that has any type of struggle, um, you know, I'm hoping that this relates to them, and and the style of music that this is 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 something that i think is going to really reflect and kind of um you know react with younger kids in terms of it's it's kind of reminiscent of early 90s you know rock music 
And, you know, my son, younger son, who's 15, all of his friends, they listen to Nirvana. They listen to Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's that's their classic rock. And uh, anyway, so that's that's kind of my final final points. And and I'll say on top of that, to keep running my mouth, you know, ultimately, it's about giving back and, and monetarily and fiscally giving back to the community, too, through through a, a number of different charitable organizations. Jason, what about you? Um, I think maybe I'll just go back uh, for a sec to your, your previous question about uh, uh, that feeling of brotherhood or, or uh, camaraderie or whatever. Um, when when I was a professional rock musician, I, I thought I had those feelings, um, like like being on the road with a you know bunch of other dudes and stuff doing a shitty van tour in europe or the the states or whatever um is not the same type of hardship uh that formed the bonds uh with the dudes that i served with um in in, uh wartime and uh, i think there's really no uh, substitute for that i guess as far as that that force um so looking forward i think playing in a rock band with a bunch of dudes who had the same experience uh, should be interesting. And I, I would imagine more, uh, it'll be easier, I think, just because of that mutual respect and, and mutual understanding. Well, listen, I think both of your stories are incredible. They are so unique. It's nothing like anything we've had on the podcast before. Uh, I certainly wish you guys luck with sounds and light and, Everything that you have going forward, I want it to be a raging success, obviously, not only for you two, but uh, for the great causes that you guys are, are, are putting, you know, your efforts behind. And I just, every time I, I do a podcast with guys like you who have these incredibly unique stories that no one has ever heard about before, it's just, it, it reminds me why we all have kind of gotten to where we are with this whole thing. And that's to share what we know and share what we've learned and keep those bonds of brotherhood formed strong and, and, and going past our, our days in uniform. So I certainly thank you guys for spending some time with us. And again, good luck with Silence and Light. I'll be following from afar, and I promise I'll pay for your music as soon as it comes out. You have you have my word on that. But Brad, Jason, thank you guys so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having us, Mark. And, and thanks for what you're doing for the veterans community, too. It's, it's a great thing. So thanks on both regards. Yeah, thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.